what's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you your weekly look at what's going on in pop culture. My name is Patchy and I am here with my co-host, who loves his wife, Dave Martin Swagger. Dave, what's going on? Oh man, love my wife. I don't know if I could express my love any greater than I do every day. Man, good to be here today. <laughs> we got not, not, not a lot to talk about this week. We're going to be talking a couple movies. Can't front. We're going to be talking a great, maybe top two TV show of the year. Tease. Question mark. A little, little tease for you. But we're going to be starting today talking about some music. As you can see, if you're looking at Dave's screen, there's a little Chance the Rapper back there. And we want to talk about what it means to chart in 2019. But before we jump into that, Hit that subscribe button if you're watching on YouTube. Go to soundcloud.com slash nostalgiapod to find all the ways to follow the podcast. And lastly, go to iTunes to give us a five-star rating and review. We appreciate all the feedback, especially on our Twitter at nostalgiapod. Dave, Lil Nas X recently set the record for longest-running song at number one on the Billboard, what, Billboard Hot 100, I believe? Correct. And before that, it was One Sweet Day. From Boys to Men and Mariah Carey and Despacito, the Bieber song that I think we talked about on the pod yep. back in Bieber and Fonzie. But Old Town Road, it's a juggernaut. There's a lot of talk, though, that's come up from this because Lil Nas X, he knows how to use the internet. He knows how to get people excited for things. And he's been dropping these remix after remix after remix that have kept the song in the zeitgeist for this long and kept the propelled the song to the longest running single of all time what are your thoughts around that and i think more importantly what are your just thoughts around what the billboard hot 100 is at this point as you said little nas x is obviously generally celebrated for understanding how the modern internet works just as a provider of memes and one to lampoon himself but also do the help of his you know his label and whatnot gaming the streaming ecosystem as well as possible strong as possible and i mean he he had both old town road and the original remix with billy ray on the seven ep and just a and, you know front first track last track just a way to continue to drive those streams for the one track that was driving all of his uh success and even if i think panini's done pretty well for him and even rodeo to a lesser extent the majority of little nas x hours logged is of course old town road and then when you do the mason ramsey thug remix and then the <laughs> remix i don't even know if anyone heard with rm from bts the soul town road and then he's joked about dolly parton and mariah carey and who the hell else knows it's it's a little a little hokey right and i think that the question is most people probably don't understand that that's how the charts work and probably even more people don't really care one way or the other so i guess you have to, to ask yourself is this a valuable way to gain get, gauge what's popular because you can look like the the Spotify, the Apple Music charts, logging daily listenership. Old Town Road hasn't been at the top of those for quite some time. Yet, because he's gaming these remixes that are all logging the original unit, he's still staying at number one. So I guess the question is, is it legit and does it matter? I think there's a lot of hubbub about the, the cheating with streaming, if you will, but you have to figure out what's the point, right? Yeah, th- those are good questions. My f- answer to the first one is the game is the game. And if these charts are going to track in this way and you can find a way to game it until they change it, I think it's all fair game to say, okay, uh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to keep this song up there and just kind of ride it out. The, the second question I care a little bit more about, does it matter at this point? And with all the ways that artists try to keep their songs, get their songs onto these these charts, whether it's through bundling ticket sales with uh, with the albums that people buy or merchandise or different things yep. like that experiences it's i think the only time that you can really take something as culturally important from the charts at this point is if you really take a long-range look and see what the trends are because you know something like i don't know it's very easy i think for an artist to put an album out have a bundle with it or, you know, ticket, merchandise, something, and that gets it onto the top 100 chart. But then the next week, are they staying up there? How much are right. they falling? What is the, the fluctuation from week to week? And I think that that is really where you'll start to see what matters. Yeah. And, you know, to that point, you obviously you mentioned the, the bundling, all the kinds of bundling. And now it seems at the point where anyone who is on a major label that's gearing up for a big album is going to bundle by default because, 
and the labels primarily the ones who care most about getting those number ones and you know staking the release dates early uh, which is generally what happens for most major label albums you know we like talking about surprise drops a lot but unless they're you know eccentric artists like tyler or mm-hmm. someone totally in control of their own destiny like beyonce it really isn't that common because the incentives aren't actually that great right and in terms of the bundling you know i guess we haven't reached a breaking point yet clearly clearly but i think we have hit like that critical mass where everyone's doing it but you know brockhampton did it last year they got number one when you're iridescence through bundling of various sorts and everyone's happy about that because everyone's rooting for them as a kind of underground group that's on a major label but then when you have like chance and dj Khaled going at it over mm-hmm. who bundled properly and will get those bundle units counted when they basically stream the exact same amount uh it's basically nonsense right right but i don't know like i think the reason i i wish it was done a little differently or done a little better is just because honestly i I keep going back to how the stands react like you go to app chart data on twitter which is a great account just tweets tons of chart information and plays and views and all that good Mm -hmm. stuff every every reply to every tweet basically is tons of stands weaponizing sales and charts and calling out competition for flopping or outselling they're outselling the others and it's just really funny to see you know young kids these stands taking ownership of something that doesn't affect them at all, the, the the status, the plays of music they already like, artists they already care about, and they almost don't care that it's all like a lot of BS sometimes. Like I've kind of stopped caring about like total units ever since, you know, streaming took over because I mean, when Country Grammar or No Strings Attached went diamond, you knew that literally mm-hmm. ten million copies were sold and purchased, right? You knew what that right. meant. And even though we know exact formula of what streaming equivalent and album equivalent units are with streaming, it's still different. And I guess we're not gauging money so much anymore. We're gauging listenership. I guess that is good, knowing that something is still being listened to over and over again. That's why Drake will never leave the charts, because all of his albums get listened to all the time. Yep. But on the other hand, you look at those top album charts, and you'll see like Billie Eilish. She's been top five basically ever since the album came out. Big album, huge album. She's a superstar. Then you look at the percentage of streams she's getting and, what, over 50% of the album streamed is just people listening to Bad Guy over and over again. So that <laughs> album chart is basically being influenced Duh. by the hit single. I guess you, the question is, is that a problem, that the album chart's really just a song chart? Does Again, does it matter? What is it telling us? And just figuring out what we want these charts to tell us and communicate, I think, is kind of the important thing. And yes, the stands will argue about superficial numbers, ultimately, but... We want the charts to communicate something. And back in the day, they communicated, you know, tangible reach of music back when we had to rely on sound scan for like radio consumption. We didn't know that. Now that we have all the data points, you kind of have to refine them, figure out what they mean. And tour bundling to influence those data points is kind of not interesting to me anyway. It doesn't really tell me much. Yeah. It's a lot. You know, as you were talking about the Twitter account, the uh, billboard or chart data, Twitter account, and the way that fans react to it and comment on it i was thinking about why fans would find it so necessary to like stream these songs over and over to propel their favorite artists to these stream megatron right and it feels like it's this this need for their favorite artists to be high on the charts to be you know up there just so that they can feel validated in who they choose to listen to who they choose to follow and i think it there needs to really i mean it's it's hard in in i think today's age when we are we see these people as so famous and we idolize them and we want to be recognized in some sense like they are people you know pay extravagant amounts of money for backstage access to meet people for like 10 15 minutes and it's this idea that like because they do well i do well and i think it's it's important for all fans to take a step back and kind of think about what do I really get out of this artistry? Because if it's, I think when it becomes something that is almost too personal to the point where it feels like if they don't succeed, then I'm not succeeding or there's something right. invalidating about me, that's when it becomes dangerous. And that's when in these kind of fight, these kind of fights start. And Twitter, I, I think it's, it's easy for that to feel like, like that's the way things are. And Twitter obviously is just a select few. And uh, usually it's the loudest people, the ones who are would scream about the most that are saying it. And most people don't take it that personally, which is important to remember. But I think there's this, these set of rabid fans out there who really 
feel the need to propel their their favorites to some level for their own feelings about themselves. Right. And it's funny, I, as we've discussed before, obviously we know hip-hop is by far the most dominant genre just in terms of sheer output, uh, popularity, certainly dominates streaming. Mm-hmm. But as we've known, stream uh, uh, hip-hop is primarily driven by streams. Album sales, traditional album sales, just buying the album is, is pretty uh, archaic in mm-hmm. hip-hop. Uh, even uh, Chance, who debuted at number two this week, a mainstream rap superstar, 100,000 plus units, yet it was sub-30. Traditional sales, pretty yep. crazy. A boogie with the hoodie, hoodie season in the, the dog days of early January this year went number one two weeks in a row with less than 10,000 traditional sales each week because he's a rapper. Meanwhile, you have you know just bands, any kind of band, whether they're new or old, like Greta Van Vliet, right? Greta mm-hmm. Van Vliet, I think, did like 80% of their huge opening week was traditional sales, even though they're technically a new band, even if they sound like an old band. And... You think about like the best-selling artists still, like up until like Chester Bennington died two years ago. Linkin Park was the most dominant rock band, <laughs> and I think these charts, these sales numbers, kind of reflect the audience, like the uh, older, less diverse audience that usually flocks to uh, legacy rock bands, and they still seem to buy music. Country yeah. artists, country fans still buy music, yet they don't really pop up on the playlist. They don't linger on. Uh, certain charts but they will linger on the traditional charts it's very it's really interesting to see how different audiences of different ages and where they're from and what they look like you know act in different ways and finding a way to measure that like how, how do we compare jason aldean one of the best you know, most successful country artists we have selling big 90 percent of his his, his 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 weeks are are from traditional sales how do we compare that to someone like chance who gets, or Travis Scott last year, who gets like millions, hundreds of millions of streams in that first week. You know, what is the difference? Is there a difference? I don't know. There's a lot too. And I think until like Rolling Stone released a new chart and Billboard made more and more charts, but I just don't know if more charts really matter until we find a way to, I don't know, maybe change the formula a bit. I'm not really sure. Just because I feel like, like I said before, I think streaming doesn't cheapen it because it gives the tail, but it, it doesn't tell you what the old measurements told us. So I don't know. There, there, there's what an album, number one album is these days really depends on who put it out. And this past week, it wasn't actually Chance. It was NF, a uh, Christian-ish diet Eminem, <laughs> who probably has a lot of fans in middle America who bought his album. And you look at the numbers and that's what happened. So it's fascinating. I have a friend who was texting me about the new Tool album coming out there you know they announced a uh, new single coming out this wednesday with an album soon to follow and they were like you know i don't even think i'm gonna listen to that single when it comes out i think i'm just gonna wait for the album because i like to listen to the music in context i said oh well you'll be able to stream it and i found the date and such was like oh no i'm probably gonna go to the store and, and buy the cd or buy the vinyl and i was like oh and i it's it's just that there are you know like you to your point those rock fans who really do like to listen to music in traditional ways and how we can ever really know like what is a number one album and and what that means now is much less significant than what it meant even 20 years ago it's the music industry is just so fractured you know one one of the things that turned us on to this topic was a podcast episode from the new york times and one of the things that they talked about there was paying attention to like the local charts like and from shazam and i think that that's actually a really interesting perspective to think about like what's popping off in certain areas as actually more of a a symbol of what's a hit than like the more traditional charts at these points so right. but it's it's still the idea like things are fracturing down to even smaller and smaller bits to find what actually matters at this point yeah, I so said if there's one chart that actually is worth paying attention to, at least gives you interesting insights into things, it's the United States Viral 50 chart on Spotify, and I believe they also have a global version of that. That's something that updates frequently. Like the Billboard charts update once a week, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, at least the main ones do. But the, the, these viral charts on the streaming services actually can maybe give you a little insight into things as they're popping off you know we used to see soundcloud soundcloud top charts as uh, the angle into that a few years ago back when it was uh, more lawless space uh, now it's kind of mainstream and streamlined by the labels but even though spotify is and apple music are very much the game 
Yep. Because these these charts are operating in a way just to capture not the biggest stuff. You know, not it's not rap caviar where you pay to get the song on there. Mm-hmm. I mean, number two on US Viral 50 right now is Jesus is the One, I Got Depression by Zach Fox and Kenny Beats, this hilarious joke rap. And it's only got 5 million total streams on Spotify, but it's been on the viral chart for about a week now. And that's fascinating to me because how did that happen? What, what got it there? Right. You know, Truth Hurts by Lizzo went viral off a Netflix trailer, despite the song being almost two years old. So I think how things blow up now in this age where anything can blow up, it's... Uh, it's interesting, and hopefully these charts can continue to evolve to capture that and tell us how things happen. Remember when when Rap Caviar first came out, and it was like just like blowing up, and everybody was like, "Oh, this is this is the playlist now. This is where you want to be to catch whatever's hot in hip hop." And then it did. It slowly became commercialized and became, yeah, you know, uh, taken over by labels. So yeah, it's sad. I think I, I kind of long for those days when it feels like things mattered a little bit more. But uh, yeah. At the same time, the fact that there's so much good stuff out there is also encouraging. So, right, yeah, Rap Caviar died for me when they had Chopsticks by (laughs) Q and Travis at the top for like three weeks, and I'm like, no one thinks the song is good, guys. You don't have to take the Interscope check this time. You can say no thanks and take someone else's money. (laughs) They they did they used to actually curate. It's frustrating, but it's got 11 million followers. What's it matter? 11 million is a lot. I don't know if 11 million people watch this show. But definitely has gotten a lot of acclaim. Euphoria. We covered the first episode of Euphoria. First two, I think. First two by Sam Levinson. Drake, someone who's on the Hot 100 charts, is an executive producer of this show. Man, the the finale wrapped up two nights ago uh, when we were recording this. And for such a powerful and memorable season of television... That like the very end in that final episode felt very anticlimactic to me, and it, it, in in a way it kind of colors the way I'm, I'm sitting with this show, um, but I don't think it takes away from the achievement that the first what seven and a half episodes were just because the ending maybe didn't land the way I wanted to. But how did you feel about Euphoria just in general? Then we'll kind of get into some more specifics. Yeah, so I, I liked the show quite a bit. I thought the show was always incredibly engaging and visually striking at almost the whole time and definitely seemed to really get into a groove as the show the season progressed through its eight episodes but yeah the uh, the finale definitely caught me a little off guard i thought there would be a little more tangible resolution or plot movement plot development and i think there was still some things that uh did, did progress certainly in the finale but i was a little taken back by the uh vagueness of some of some of where, where we left off but overall I, i'm very excited that the show was renewed for season two already because i liked it a lot yeah and you talked about finding its groove and i think one of the things that stood out about the show was the the structure of each episode where it started off with these real deep dives into some of the the b characters you know they kind of got opens. rue and jewels out of the way early but the cold opens about Maddie or about Cat, I thought, or Cassie were all really, really uh, intriguing and well done. And I thought that added a really cool structure to the show because they're using this first five to six minutes to flesh out these characters. And you can then, I mean, it adds just so much depth to the show. Like you, you understand their their decisions more. You understand their motivations more. This is really smart. And also, uh, going back to what I said earlier, the style of the show, I think the the cinematography the lighting uh the costumes all really stood out and it felt like there was a real sense of the show had a sense of what it wanted to do and who it wanted to be which i think was really really refreshing don't forget the eye makeup man a <laughs> lot, lot, lot of love for the uh the eyeshadow and whatnot yeah a lot of glitter <laughs> i i don't know i don't remember there being that much glitter in in high school but it's also uh 10 years after i graduated high school at this point right so. well you know it's funny i kind of had a a call back to what we talked about we talked about the first two episodes where it's obviously a stylized portrayal of mm-hmm. uh, gen z high school experience today um it's not pretending it's not, not lying to you about that but i i couldn't i couldn't help but notice i was like when they had the prom in the finale um even though we kind of was that prom little, i mean that was some kind of prom right the problem was that we kind of had too many flashbacks and cuts to other scenes and other moments that it was 
a little jarring. But mm-hmm. I think that was supposed to be a prom of some kind. Dance, at least. They were taking pictures. Like a winter maybe, ball, maybe? Maybe it was some other dance, whatever. Yeah. I thought it was a prom. The point is, it was a super unsupervised prom. Yeah. Like, this was a prom happening at the school <laughs> that they go to. And there was not a teacher. There, there was hella fucking in the bathroom. Yep. Hella smoking. Like, that never <laughs> happens at any prom. I no. just thought that was funny. Yeah. But I don't care. I liked watching it. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. The the parents in this, I mean, I guess other than like Rue's mom and Jules' dad sometimes, I mean, Kat's mom showed up in the very last episode and she's basically wearing like a corset only to go to the prom and she's like, yeah, you look great. It's like, what? We, we, I, need, <laughs> I need you to step in here. Your daughter is literally like a dominatrix online uh, or I don't know if it's dominatrix. I don't know even how you put that. Cam girl. Cam girl. Yeah. What, what characters or what stories st- did you enjoy the most following this season? Well, I think the obvious highlight is the Rue Jules friendship dynamic codependence of the relationship. Uh, seeing that play out and just get fleshed out due to the strength of Zendaya and Hunter Schaefer's acting and their great chemistry. It was clearly the strength of the show, it really kept the show going. They're the two main characters. That's kind of the focus of everything. Um, even, though the, even though the ensemble is strong and we got to know most of that, uh, you know, as you said. The focus being Rue and Jules, I think, was smart because it was done so well and uh, so convincingly. And you know, just having this relationship develop, and it's not, nothing's made of the fact that it's a LGBT relationship. The fact that it's certainly non-traditional. The fact that uh, Jules is uh, trans is not really uh, a topic to 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 explore. Just kind of accepted, and they go into a little bit in her backstory. But I thought that that was done really well, just because they kind of just subvert. Uh, your expectations of where they want things to go. And even if this finale is suggesting that Rue perhaps has relapsed right at the end as Jules has left her, you know, it's tough to really know what they mean by this. Uh, again, I thought it was a little little, little vague for my liking. Uh, their relationship throughout was just super compelling. And I think, again, the, the, the strength of the talent involved you know, really, really sells it. So that, that's kind of what I want to see the most moving forward, to see more of them because they were so great. Yeah, I mean, Jules and Rue were captivating, but I think the standout for a lot of people, or maybe like the the MVP behind them, is Fez, played by Angus Cloud. Which mm-hmm. is funny because uh, if you want to talk about like the Dion Waiters Award to, to take away from the rewatchables, I mean, he wins yeah. it without a doubt. Every time he's on screen, absolutely electric. I think <laughs> he maybe says like fifty words all season, and still uh his presence is is obvious um what whether it was the the fentanyl scene with uh right. with rue and uh what what's the the drug dealer's name I, oh i don't even know that scary fucking guy yeah <laughs> he's he's terrifying whoever plays him also excellent and then also the the scene w- between him and nate was incredibly tense yep. and even in the in the finale you know him uh having to you know go and steal money from somebody so he can pay off the drug dealer and the guy trying to grab a gun during it and the way he had to react just uh really really captivating every time he was on screen yeah i also really like sydney sweeney as cassie mm. again a character another character that has a lot, of, a lot of growth throughout and both her coming to terms with uh who she is how she feels about things her relationship with mckay kind of goes its natural course and uh, i think she's she was a lot of fun and also, again, pretty warm, you know, you kind of learning that backstory about, you know, stuff with her dad and uh, her once life of ice skating and things like that, right? Mm-hmm. And kind of similar to what they do for Maddie, you know, someone who doesn't come off as very likable in the beginning due to her association with Nate and just kind of a standoffish nature with her friends and stuff. But then you kind of understand, again, where she's coming from, how uh, she got to this point and... Uh, there's just a lot of shades of gray with a lot, of, a lot of the characters. I think, frankly, the only character that doesn't really have any shades of gray is Nate. Nate Jacobs, uh, <laughs> arguably the second most. Or who, who is mo- most most detestable in the HBO summer season? Mary Louise from Big Little Lies or Nate from oh, Euphoria? N- Nate for sure. You know, M- Mary Louise had some good points. Like <laughs> when, when you know, crashing when, her car. Yeah, and she's she's not even remembering driving at this point. Like. She should. She needed to be a better parent. That's for sure. But Nate is literally just like absolutely just Black an awful people. person. Yeah, I mean, and the Assaulting fact he people. continually gets away from away with things. The fact he like beat that guy's yeah. face into a pulp and then blackmails him into 
uh, admitting to a sexual assault um, and blackmailing Jules into supporting it is just also like mastermind right. crazy. And actually, the probably the most affecting moment with Nate for me was, and there was a lot of scenes that were tough to watch, but the last scene he was in where Eric Dane, his dad, um, like wrestles him to the ground because mm-hmm. Nate, like you know, is like trying to intimidate him, and then he just starts like losing his shit and like having a mental breakdown there on the floor and just like screaming with rage. It was really like uh, unsettling, and I think just pointing more to that internal rage he has with the conflict with the sexuality and all of his family secrets um i thought the guy uh the actor who played nate um jacob alordi yeah i thought he was fantastic this season um as was someone that doesn't get a lot of shine Maud apatow who played lexi and maybe the most subdued role of the season you know uh, i guess maybe rue's mom uh is a little bit more on the sidelines but Lexi, I mean, she protects her sister from McKay in that episode. She's there for her during the abortion. She helps Rue figure it, like, solve the detective stuff. Lexi's a, a underappreciated character in the show. She's also the most normal, the one I can relate to the most. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, uh, I, I appreciate Good girl. her. <laughs> I, I wanted to go, I want to talk a little bit about the style of the show because I think the moments people that probably stood out the most were the most non-traditional or the ones that kind of you know oh, tested yeah. out what were your favorite ones in that sense yeah clear answer for me i believe it was the second to last episode episode seven it's the one where Rue's figuring out <laughs> the, the master plan room. that uh, nate had or was doing you know f- connecting all the dots but it's done as if she's in like a hard-boiled detective noir film mm-hmm and like she has like the outfit and everything. She's got the gun holsters on. She's chain smoking at three in the morning. Like I was laughing and just incredibly entertained the whole time. Because again, Zendaya is quite restrained a lot as Rue, given who Rue is. But we know how talented she is as a performer. So the fact that she can kind of turn it on for a second there and do something a little different, yeah, was cool. But again, like they sell it because this, the set design of that, um, again, stuff that's just 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 in in the head. <laughs> is is done so convincingly it looks so great so yeah that was my uh, clear uh clear choice for that yeah and the you know the the dick pic presentation is another one that really stood out this season it was hilarious but it really I, just matters how you take the picture to be honest. <laughs> but what i what i found i think what i liked more about the uh, the detective one and i agree with you that one stood out to me as well was the way it interplayed with things that were actually happening you know, it, it's supposed to like mimic this manic episode that she's having as she's figuring all this out. And the way she's like interacting with her mom throughout it and just like other people. And they were just like, what are you doing? And she's like, I'm on a roll. Don't stop me. And like, just, just kind of like move on, like keep talking through things. It's just really, really well done. Yeah, I, I think I think the show uh, can continue to take more and more chances. You know, something I thought was a really uh really cool scene was in the second to last episode when Jules goes to that rave or dance party, whatever it is. Um, I thought the way that they were cutting between Rue's, uh, I think it was a kidney infection and mm-hmm. uh, how she was like dealing with that and Jules and what she was struggling or what she was going through at that time, almost like her self enlightenment in a sense right. was really well done. Like the, the intersplicing in the music in it um, and also kind of pulling in like Nate as this like, shadowy figure kind of over everything was just really really masterfully done yes i mean speaking of music music in general uh probably chalking up to drake's ep credit but man the soundtrack was phenomenal from yeah. the start man i mean i remember the first time i was like oh wait a minute they're fucking going for it. they had megan the stallion but they had like they had a uh, too cocky from tina mm-hmm. snow from last year they didn't have any of the new stuff they didn't have something as obvious as big old freak right yep and just hearing that as uh all the kids are just fucking going ham in like the minivan yeah, super good. And even like there's like more ambient stuff, like Doja Cat's "Juicy" just kind of playing in the background in a scene. Mm-hmm. Um, too short comes in on the finale. Uh, tons of great drops, but they're also like really spliced in, in great moments. Um, I know sometimes there will be shows that they feel the need to fill all the white noise with music. I didn't find that the case with Euphoria, even though there was a lot of music. I, I feel like it it, uh, it it all landed pretty well. Did you have any uh, thoughts on the music? Because I, I think it's overall just an impressive you know, group of uh, modern songs. You don't see that often. Yeah, the music drops were really, really well done. And I actually think they mixed in a lot of uh, like older stuff too, effectively. Like 
uh, a song for you playing at the end of uh, the finale. Um, I think it, they had a, a Motown song in like the sixth or seventh episode that really stood out to me. But I knew that the music in the show was going to be excellent when in the first episode at the party they had uh jamie xx playing good times and i was like yes. okay they, they they know what they're doing here they know uh, yeah <laughs> that was the first time but yeah even uh like for having drake as the executive producer to only drop one drake song and have it be non-stop and have it fit perfectly into like mm-hmm. the mood of that scene like leading up to the euphoria euphoria intro just uh phenomenal uh really right. can't speak to that those choices enough I wanted to ask you, were there any choices or any characters this season that you didn't really like or that didn't work for you? No one I didn't really like. I think there were certainly characters I want to see more from. I think that Ethan is really just there to be uh, interacting with Kat the whole time. I'd like to see more of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, Lexi, Maud Apatow, as you said. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of meat on that bone, you figure. Mm-hmm. Um, even, you know, Kat in general, I think um, the camming stuff, which starts pretty early in the season... Um, after she uh, avoids a uh, sex tape scandal, right? Um, I, mean, that, I mean, that was certainly a shocking thing. I thought it was effective, but I don't know if she really... It was kind of like supplemental to the arc she was on the whole time. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking forward to them perhaps uh, continuing you know, her, her, her newfound relationship and who, who she was, and maybe we can avoid this the, the shocking stuff. Because I, I feel like the camming stopped adding stuff after a while mm-hmm. but this is a minor gripe i'm curious to see if mckay comes back yeah um, it did feel like we had a pretty succinct arc for him um him, him himself obviously uh cassie's her own her, her own aspect to this but you know maybe i mean i mean maybe he drops out i don't know but if he didn't return i wouldn't be surprised but yeah and then uh a fez obviously as you said and his brother ashtray i mean heck we, we didn't get a cold open about fez i know you know, I, we didn't get that voiceover, learning more about that. And you could do a lot with that. And, and again, Sam Levinson, is he wrote everything for the, this season, directed a lot of it. And he definitely will not shy away from the experimental thing. So maybe you could, I don't know, there's a lot of options. Yeah. So just looking forward to seeing it. We don't have a production start date yet, so no guarantee it comes back next year. But we'll we'll be watching for sure. And I think this show definitely has more highs to hit you know i think like thematically there are more things we can try and achieve but even if this was just like like s tier skins it was fucking good <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, really good also just quick fez feels as good as gone for next season right like he's gonna die at some point yeah uh, it's tough to see a happy ending for yeah. someone like him right uh this kind of rope is in a little bit more first before they kill him you know yeah uh, anyways euphoria if you haven't watched or if you have you're not caught up please do so also go watch hobbs and shaw david leach's new film the spin-off of the fast and furious series i found myself watching a lot of fast and furious this weekend on tv in my downtime living my life a quarter mile at the time at a time man uh i'm not a huge fast and furious right fan so going to see hobbs and shaw my expectations were pretty low. Uh, you're about to say something. Go ahead. I'm just gonna say it's also not the best entry point for the franchise, given that's a spinoff. Right. Well, I, I've seen. <laughs> I've seen uh, other. I've seen bits and, and pieces. I hadn't. I don't think I've ever sat down and watched one all the way way through. Mm. Uh, car uh, movies. Unfortunate. Yeah, are not really my thing. Uh, this basically ended up being B level Mission Impossible in my book, yes. which. I was okay with it was entertaining um there were certain things that i thought worked worked really well certain things i thought did not land at all um but overall <laughs> i left relatively happy how did you feel about hops and shaw yeah uh <laughs> as you said the fast and furious franchise despite being the most financially successful and dominant action franchise we have it is not as intelligent as mission possible or the jason borton series no 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 one would uh would say that it's not mad max fury road oh my uh, god it's deckard shaw <laughs> <laughs> like, imagine that and even as the franchise has grown past the you know it's not about street racing anymore that, that's long gone yeah. ever since fast five really and now it's just you know, just, just pure action but the fact that we actually got to a point where we have a spin-off with uh the villain of the sixth film 
and a supporting good guy who we saw in the fifth film. Uh, it's just kind of funny that we got got here. And honestly, I didn't really feel like there was that many through lines for it being a fast movie beyond the obvious family platitudes that we usually expect from Vin Diesel and crew, La Mm -hmm. Familia, the Toretto's. We we get it, right? Like Vin is basically giving the same speech for, for eight films. And now we had a Hobbs and Hobbs's mom give us that speech this time around. Mm -hmm. And I guess even Vanessa Kirby and Jason Statham are 20 years apart, roughly as in real life, but they're siblings in this movie and their mom's Helen Mirren, who we previously had met as well. So, there's your family connection. There's your franchise. Uh, We're a family uh, tissue. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's just uh, it's just kind of a brainless, but also very enjoyable action romp, you know. And I think the key we needed was Vin Diesel and Jason Statham. Or uh, geez, Vin, The Rock would be very mad at me now. The Rock <laughs> and Jason Statham to have great chemistry for this movie to work. And you know, we got a hint of their chemistry in Fast Eight, mm-hmm. and I think th- they work. Uh, they play off each other really well. And I actually like how they built up to them going from straight guys that don't fuck with each other to actual, you know, having a bit of mutual respect. Uh, I liked how we got to that point. And Idris, who I, we had previously seen in a blockbuster franchise as a villain in Star Trek Beyond with lots of prosthetics, I think he's really good at selling uh, a bunch of crap, you know, like a Brixton. Uh, I think there was a lot to Brixton. But... I like watching Idris do things and whether yeah. it's just beating people up or riding a kick-ass motorcycle. Cool, man. But he, he was fun. But obviously the star, uh, to the, the shock of absolutely nobody, was Vanessa Kirby, who mm-hmm. we had just seen do this even better in Mission Impossible Fallout. And man, I thought she was fantastic the whole time. And I actually was surprised she was in the movie as much as she was. I didn't realize she was basically the third lead. But I had, I had a lot of fun with that. And like I said, the plot's super brainless, the uh, the bad guys, uh, whatever, that <laughs> we hadn't seen before. But we get some crazy fast shit. In this case, it was a bunch of trucks hooked up to each other to keep a helicopter close. Sure, man. And having the rock flex holding a chain while attached to a, a tow truck, yeah. as it were. Um, I mean, this is a guy who, Hobbs, of course, we know, diverted a torpedo from a submarine just <laughs> one movie ago. So why not? hold a helicopter with his sheer hands. I'm with it. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, I, I, I had a good time. Isn't this just like G.I. Joe's now? <laughs> like, <laughs> it's funny. He was in G.I. Joe Retaliation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I want to start with maybe the first thing that stood out to me that I was just kind of like, what are we doing here? How old, <laughs> how old do you think Vanessa Kirby is? She's like 34. 31. Like yep. You're okay. close. How old do you think Jason Statham is? He's in his 50s. I didn't know that. And right? yeah, he he's 52. They're 21 years apart. A whole person who could have been born and been able to drink at this point. And drafted. But apparently, their brother and sister who were close enough in age where they were doing these Grew up together. things together. Who's aging up? Who's aging down here? Because Vanessa Kirby, I, I, I don't think she can play up. So Jason Statham was supposed to believe he's like 35? You know, it's funny. <laughs> he basically looks the ex- he's looked the exactly the same since we saw him in snatch true right like he, he, he i guess we were aging statham down i didn't actually realize he was in his 50s i thought he was maybe 40 i thought he's like leonardo DiCaprio's age or something huh mid 40s yeah that's not a, that's not a big stretch for me i mean he's always been bald he's always been muscular right fit. so I, I i can i can look past that okay so so the next thing i'm supposed <laughs> to, i'm supposed to believe vanessa kirby is really into the rock uh, there there was nothing there oh, no chemistry that was dumb. i was like cool. Yeah, man, get get that love connection out of there. Climb this that. mountain, baby. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it, when I I know I have to uh, basically throw belief out the window in a lot of these things. Like you said, the rock was like mm-hmm. holding onto a chain, like in midair, holding like a helicopter. To, it was like ridiculous <laughs> shit. Quite convincingly. Yeah, I mean that, that's the thing. The rock is basically like a real life superhero at this point. But just some of those little things, like just didn't make sense to me. Maybe make maybe make Vanessa Kirby like a cousin, or at least in the flashbacks, like show her being a little bit younger. Uh, the things that worked for me, though, were all the action scenes. I thought the action in this movie was really well done and really fun. I really liked a lot of the car chases, actually, probably mm-hmm. more than I liked the yeah. actual fighting. You know, things like uh, when Jason Statham is driving his, uh, I think it was a Ferrari McLaren, McLaren uh, through 
London and he goes underneath that tractor trailer and then bricks it on the motorcycle, like slides underneath too. That's, I, a, that's a nod to Fast One. That was what Letty used to do. That was first movie. really fucking awesome. I thought the ending battle was pretty cool, although yeah, this is my my, my third gripe. That, that battle starts at night and then goes into daytime and then back into the next night all within like an hour. It was absurd. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. <laughs> they they light up those torches to like keep you know put the fire ring around all them and it's pitch right. blackout. Then they start fighting and it's dawn. And then by the time they fight Brixton on that cliff, it's nighttime again. It was bizarre. You know it's funny when when I realized Cliff Curtis was Hobbs's brother, I was like, Cliff Curtis is Samoan. I didn't know that. He's actually New Zealand, <laughs> New Zealander. But I was like. Is this guy a black guy? I was I wasn't sure. I was like, wait a minute, this is a walk for me. But now he's yeah, he's an <laughs> islander at least. The Samoa stuff really came out of nowhere for me, mm-hmm. and I actually liked it a lot. I thought it was just you know, you the the set pieces leveled up in the, in that that third act right there, and it was it was pretty enjoyable. But a shot of Roman Reigns who has no lines at all, <laughs> just does some wrestling moves when he's fighting. Yep. Uh, sure. Why not? <laughs> It's being wrestling. I believe John Cena is going to be in Fast Nine, which comes out next year. I like the Isaac Gonzalez bit role; super compelling. Want to see her in more stuff? And is it believable that her and uh, Shaw are dating or fucking? Yeah, yeah, I guess. But you know, given what we saw in Shaw in the beginning, you know, ultimately, I think this is successful enough to justify it being a spinoff. And I know it's you know just being labeled as a blatant money grab for a franchise that is effectively just one never-ending money grab at this point. And even though this only made like 60-some-odd million dollars, definitely franchise low, that's actually the biggest non-Disney opening weekend of the summer, hmm. which is kind of crazy. And, you know, David David Leach, man, co-directs John Wick, Atomic Blonde, Deadpool 2, now uh, Hobbs and Shaw. Guys on fucking heater, man, just in terms of big pro big projects that all work. Uh, pretty impressive. And another thing that actually took me by surprise with this, I did not know Ryan Reynolds and Kevin Hart were speaking. I don't think anyone did. <laughs> and Rob Delaney. Right. And and, and Reynolds uh, apparently actually rewrote a lot of his lines doing his uh you know Deadpool riffing. That, that was that was cool. I thought he was a lot of a lot of fun in this. Detective Pikachu back in the flesh. Mm-hmm. And but Kevin Hart, man, coming in as the air marshal, I thought he was really re- really really funny and a great way to kind of push Hobbs and Shaw together. Yeah. Now you're not a big fast fast guy, as you've said. Are you aware of how we first meet Deckard Shaw, Jason Statham, in this franchise? Do you know how he comes into the orbit? Yeah, he's a villain, right? And was it seven? Yes, he, he's yeah. the villain of Furious Seven, but he actually comes into play for us in the post credits of Furious Six, ah. where his brother uh, Owen Shaw is played by Luke Evans. That's the villain of Six, and at the very end. Uh, by a bit of blockbuster retconning, we find out that Han, who dies at the end of Tokyo Drift, the third movie, uh, he was part of Dom's crew and he went off to uh, went went off went off to uh, Japan and he dies. We t- find out that that crash where he died in was caused by Jason Statham. Basically, the movie comes up and he's like, Dominic Toretto, I'm coming for you, motherfucker. You don't know who I am, but you will know soon. Like that's how he set it up. So the point is, not a bad Statham man. <laughs> he's set up as this big villain, and Han was a fan favorite character. And there's a bit of a Justice for Han campaign ever since Fast 8, back in 2017, 18, 17, where he kind of becomes a pseudo-good guy, playing with The Rock and helping the dominant crew to a certain extent. And everyone's just thinking, like, we have this Han erasure where this guy committed a heinous act, really killing one of the family, is now kind of a good guy who we like. So some of the hardcore Fast faithful are not happy about this development still. So is he going to come back? Han? No, no, he, he he's he's super he's dead. He's done. Oh, okay. He's super dead. Yeah. The way, well, the thing it's really funny because the way the Brixton fr- was too, right? Is, like, didn't he get shot in the head? Uh, I think Brixton's super dead as well. Oh, okay. But but apparently he was super dead and then was brought back to life, is what I'm saying. That's true. We've established this now that everyone's just. I mean, everyone's a superhero. Anything's possible. I mean, heck, in Furious Seven, we parachuted cars from the sky onto roads and it looked badass. <laughs> they, they, awesome. they jump buildings and it goes up. It doesn't go down. It like goes up a floor. It's incredible. Now I was thinking about Fury 7. Like you see in the trailer, like, oh shit, we're we're jumping the Burj Khalifa with a Ferrari. Oh my God. And then when you watch the movie, you're like, oh my God, we're jumping two buildings. <laughs> it's crazy. But I mean, the thing is the franchise, 
it was obviously a very different thing. It was basically Point Brink, but they were stealing DVD players in the first one. And then Too Fast, Too Furious comes out. That's where Tyrese is introduced. That's where Ludacris is introduced. Be- very bad. Arguably the worst movie of the franchise. And it's basically dead. Tokyo Drift's a spinoff uh, with Lucas Black and Bow Wow. <laughs> and uh, that's where we first meet Han. And then we find out later, uh, you know, uh, we, we go basically go back in time. Like Tokyo Drift's the last movie to take place because Han, Han was alive in the future movies. And he, he leaves after Furious 6 when Gal Gadot dies. And it's a pretty, actually, pretty easy to understand timeline. Just the movies came out in different orders. But yeah, this Han erasure, man. The hardcore fans not taking it well. But I mean, it was no different to you, right? You're like, I don't even know who Han is, man. I just know Jason Statham. <laughs> How do you feel about this overarching like bad guy that was introduced at the end who was like controlling Brixton? How do you feel about it? So that's the thing where like uh, they, they tease that he's met Statham before, right? Now, I think that's a bit of a red herring. People, they want all the fans to think, oh, who in the franchise could it be that we've met before? I, I, basically, I, I feel like that's not even decided yet unless that person's going to show up in 9, which is already being filmed. It'll probably just be a new character played by a famous actor, Yeah, to be honest. I suppose it could be Charlie's Throne. That's what I was going to say. She, Maybe it was Charlie's. She's coming back for a 9. But yeah, I think it's probably barely fleshed out unless we're going to see it soon. But it's, it's a good tease, I guess, for the franchise building. You know, we already know they want to make a 10th one as well. And the joke for years now has been, we got to take these cars to space. I think we'll get there. (laughs) Where are you putting Hobbs and Shaw in your Fast and Furious rankings? Uh, Firmly middle tier. Uh, Too Fast and Fast and Furious, the the second and fourth movies, are at the bottom for me. Then it's probably this and Fate, uh, number eight, the last one we saw. This was probably my favorite Fast and Furious I saw in theaters. So, uh, it's up How many there. have you seen? Uh, zero. Uh, before this. So it's firmly nice. number one for me. One well, of one. <laughs> why don't we move on to a uh, film that's probably going to make a lot less money than Hobbs and Shaw. <laughs> the Art of Self-Defense. Riley Stern's movie starring Jesse Eisenberg. 84% Rotten Tomatoes. Dave, you saw this movie. I have not been able to yet. Uh, give give the people a little taste of why, why this is a movie they should see. Art of Self-Defense, the second movie from Riley Stearns, who f- his first movie is called Faults, which has Mary Elizabeth Winstead. I have not seen that. And this is a very small movie put out by Bleecker Street. Got a fair amount of love after premiering at South by Southwest. And very small movie, super cheap, a 25-day shoot. Very, very contained movie. And Jesse Eisenberg is the lead, which is, uh, I think, really interesting because... Eisenberg's kind of been an interesting uh, career path since Social Network, and he blew up from that, right? And then there was a lot of time when they're trying to push Eisenberg as this compelling, charismatic, leading man figure. And if we're being honest, he's just not that. That's just not like the the neurotic performances that he can give are great and are lead performances, but they're not the traditional uh, charisma you expect. They're trying to put him into that role in past movies and heck, even... Stuff like when he's playing Lex Luthor, Batman vs. Superman. It was just, they were trying to, I think, put the the square peg into the round hole for a while. But mm-hmm. this is interesting for me. I think it really works because Eisenberg is playing an awkward guy. He's playing a 35-year-old accountant, lives alone, has a dog, a uh, pretty meek guy. And this movie, which I think is a great success, and I would encourage everyone to see if they can. Uh, it's going to be on Hulu down the line, so that's probably the avenue for most people to see it because it has not made a lot of money it's losing its theaters uh, and it's about done in the theaters but eisenberg uh through this movie with riley stearns they're basically just lampooning masculinity and uh what it means to be tough what it means to be a man and gender roles and hyper aggression and all that it's really done in a really funny way and ultimately it's a quite it's quite a black comedy and it's also a bit of a two-hander it's really just eisenberg who plays this guy named casey and Alessandro Nivola, who you see on the screen, who plays a sensei. And after Eisenberg is uh, mugged at night, he feels he needs to better himself. So he goes to this dojo to learn karate. That's really the all the pretext you need. But the way the movie expertly, I think, explores modern masculinity in a movie that actually feels quite timeless. Like the dojo is just called just says karate outside. And Sensei is just named Sensei, and there's a, there's a 
Casey has a very small TV at home, and I don't think we even see a cell phone in the movie. So it's a bit of a uh, of a piece, but I just think the observations it has about uh about masculinity is really fun. There's a lot of good jokes about manly names and dog breeds and European countries that are masculine and those that aren't, and of course uh, misogynistic attitudes as well. Imogen Pot uh, Poots plays the one female character in the movie who's also uh, training at the dojo, and yeah, I think I don't really want to spoil where it goes, but the commentary the movie is presenting in a compelling black comedic way, uh, I think is, is quite effective. So I would definitely recommend people check this out once it gets uh, gets to Hulu. Bleecker Street just signed an exclusive deal with Hulu, so all their movies will get to Hulu, which is, I think, kind of cool because most of their movies are small. People usually miss them. I mean, this was by me by for like three weeks, only at one of the theaters, and you know how that goes when this movie doesn't make big gains the way a farewell does. So then it only is in theaters twice a day at like one in the afternoons. It's hard to see small movies if they don't immediately become really successful. So fear not, it'll be streaming soon enough. And definitely uh, give it a chance. I think there's a, a lot to like about this. And it's uh, definitely one of the more unique movies I've seen this year thus, thus far. So I was quite satisfied. Yeah, I'm looking forward to checking it out. It sounds like it, it's a movie that really focuses on getting its message across, which I think uh, I, I like that timeless aspect of it and looking forward to seeing Eisenberg. I, I feel like he's he's very hit or miss. So I feel like if if he's good, he's good. And if he's bad, it'll at least still be worth watching. But that wraps it up for us this week. Like, like we said, short episode. What do we got next week, Dave? So next week, I think the, the big highlight for us is, of course, the premiere of Succession season two this yeah. Sunday on HBO. The best HBO show of last year. Was it your number one last year? Yeah. Yeah, I think I had a two. We both adore the show, cannot wait, and the early reviews are glowing, which is exciting. Uh, we'll also be talking about Legion Season 3, wrapping up the final season of Legion, the series finale. Uh, it's on Monday. And also Glow Season 3 premieres on Netflix this Friday. We'll be getting to that in the upcoming week or two. And also, someone we've talked about a little bit recently, Rick Ross, on a great feature run, is releasing Port of Miami too and you bet your ass we're going to talk about the boss looking forward to it subscribe on youtube uh, go to soundcloud.com slash nostalgia pod to find all the ways to follow us and give us that five-star rating and review on itunes and we'll see you next week and-